All right, I normally don't do a disclaimer before I do a LinkedIn Live, but I just wanna make sure that no one is unduly surprised. The word Jesus will come up in this LinkedIn Live. This is not preaching. This is a conversation about how do we have conversations about religion, about politics, about any kind of disagreement. And just so happens that our guest is a, it works in a faith-based community, writes extensively on faith and family. Her book looks at this from both the standpoint of politics in which she's well-grounded, well as religion. So it's gonna happen. And uh, if you feel like, well, I better tune it out, but Shelly's gone off the deep end. I need this more than you even realize. That may be like any twinge of that would be a sign to stick around. Uh, let me start by asking you a question and you can put it in the chat if you'd like. Um, have you ever lost a friend because you and they disagreed about something like politics, maybe who the president of the United States should be, whether or not an election was stolen or legitimate. Have you ever lost a friend, maybe somebody you've known forever, and then all of a sudden you stop following each other on Facebook, whatever it might be. If so, I'd love to get your thoughts in the chat today. Our conversation is gonna be hopefully to keep you from doing that. And also not just isolating yourself in your holy huddle of your way of thinking. Uh, the guest is amazing. I saw her uh, interviewed by Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is somebody that I follow. I watch his sermons every week. Uh, there, there's that Christianity thing in there again. Um, and I am just, I was blown away by her. I mean, she just has such a pedigree and such an intellect. And I immediately went and got the book. And then I read it in about like five minutes. Uh, no, it wasn't that quick. It was it's 250 some pages, but I read it. I just devoured it. I didn't put it down. And then I went, oh my God, now I got to really read it. You know what I mean? I, I was so swept by it. Now I got to get in there and I got to live it. And I got to work it. And I got to follow all of these suggestions, she says. Without further ado, Sarah B. Anderson joins me today. Sarah, thanks for being on the show. So uh, much for having me. Let's talk about this book. This is the first book. I mean, you you write all the time. You're like a prolific writer and a, an amazing reader. But why suddenly decide I'm going to do a book about a topic that most people would want to stay away from, like the plague? <laughs> well, I don't know if you've noticed, but there does seem to be some conflict around politics and religion. So the timing seemed right in a lot of ways. Um, and I actually started writing it about four years ago when it seemed to me um, things had taken uh a darker turn when it came to the political discourse and just um, tried to shop it around to a publisher, wasn't able to find it. And then the timing seemed even better this past year um, when it seemed like things weren't improving, that things continued to go kind of in a downward spiral when it came to not just the way we talk about politics, but how we talk to one another when it comes to politics. Um, and so it wasn't just conflict I was sensing on policy issues, but it was becoming very personal on how we treated each other. And so, so I, look, I was yeah. going to say, let me let me just kind of take you back to when you were a little girl, because that yeah. was the found that enabled you to be credible in this space. Right. Uh, yeah. And and that starts uh, with this guy right here. Let me make sure I pop him up here. This guy who um, <laughs> in 2000 uh, ran for president of the United States in the Republican Party, got beat out in the primary by a guy by the name of George W. Bush. But right. uh your dad uh, got this whole thing started for you. So can you talk to us a little bit for those who may not remember your dad's pancake flipping experience <laughs> uh, or other other elements of that particular campaign? 
uh, why we what, what Gary Bauer has to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. So my parent, I grew up in a very politically involved family. So I grew up just outside Washington, D.C. My dad worked in the Reagan administration. My mom worked for a congressman from Massachusetts for several years growing up. Um, so we were just kind of in the in the the whole Washington bubble, you know, the whole way. Um, and then in, in 2000, 1999, officially, my dad threw his hat into the Republican nomination and ran for president himself. And so I grew up kind of experiencing a lot of the perks of, of being just politically involved enough to be able to do things like attend inaugural parades and, and Easter egg roll at the White House. Um, but when he ran for president, it really kind of opened my eyes to um, how mean-spirited politics can become in a lot of ways. And especially in the primary season when typically, you know, you see Republicans versus Democrats, there's tension there, we get that. But in primary season, the conflict is in-house and it's Republicans against other Republicans and Democrats against other Democrats. And that just kind of opened my eyes to, gosh, this is, this is a bigger problem than I realized. It's not just one team versus the other team. It's that we are looking for ways to really be combative with one another in really unhealthy ways and how we kind of fight that. And then, you know, fast forward several years, I've left Washington. My whole family still has stayed in Washington. And as sometimes happens in families, as I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, um, we don't always land on the same page when it comes to politics anymore. And the only thing that I had seen when it came to disagreeing with politics was either you don't talk about it or you lose relationships and friends and family because you don't agree on it and you do talk about it. So um, with my family, we were so involved, um, not talking about it was not an option. Both my sister and brother have grown up and, and stayed involved in politics. My dad stay, stayed involved. I didn't, but we couldn't not talk about it. So we had to figure out a way forward relationally to talk about the issues and not just around the issues that we felt differently on and, and still do it in a way that showed that we loved and respected one another. Because I don't think any of us were willing to compromise our relationship with each other, even though our positions were changing on some things. Well, it's, it's interesting because as you say that, uh, somebody who joined us uh, on LinkedIn Live, uh, Devin Smith says he's made a point not to lose friends as a result, but to engage further. If there's such a, a sharp disagreement, it's not always easy to say the least. So I, I kind of think that echoes you like we, you made a point to say we've got to figure this out. We don't have the option of avoiding each other. We're family kind of we're yeah. voiced upon each other for life. Right. right. Uh, and we can choose to figure our path out if we're willing. And so that was foundational to this work. The other thing I think is interesting about the way you frame it in the book is that you felt real pain with people that you grew up with who were friends of the family and now suddenly they couldn't be your friend yeah. because their family supported one of the other candidates for you know for this particular presidential election yeah that was an early memory for you yeah. right yeah yeah i mean my family will joke about me being probably the more sensitive of everybody in the family and i probably carried that um more emotionally than anybody else, but it was a real thing for me. I, I didn't necessarily feel in friends pulling away from me, but I noticed it in the friendships my parents had, that there were people who weren't coming around to the house as much as a result, or people who had pledged support before him and now my dad announcing that he was going to run that were no longer around once he did run. And just feeling like there was this sense that if we weren't, um, if somebody wasn't going to endorse my dad or endorse him politically, then there there was their presence had to be removed from our lives, or that's how it felt. And, and that just feels like a very unhealthy way to engage with people who think differently than us. Um, in some ways, I think it's 
easier, you know, just completely distance ourselves. But in a lot of ways, I think that's what's landed us where we are right now, that we have distanced ourselves from people who don't agree with us. And now we don't know how to talk about things that feel uncomfortable. You know, I talk about in the book a little bit um, that civil discourse is like a muscle and it atrophies without use. So if we're distancing ourselves from people we don't agree with, we're not just going to all of a sudden remember how to talk about complicated things. We're going to forget. And then when we're presented with the opportunity where we have to talk about it, it's not going to go well. So this is a muscle we've got to keep practicing. And I love that Devin said that that's some, he's made it a point to lean into those relationships because that's where I think the real health and healing is going to take place. So I'm going to have to disclose things. I don't really like to disclose, <laughs> but I was a radio talk show host in Colorado Springs, Colorado for a decade. And, you know, I used to think if I could just be civil, if I can be in the middle and I can be moderate. So let me give you an example of a position I would take. I'm in the land of focus on the family. James Dobson routinely would call into my radio program. <laughs> yeah. um, and I had military all over. It was a fairly conservative community. Um, and so I would take a moderate stand. I'm not even sure what, if I knew what I felt, really. I just knew where I wanted to position mm -hmm. the message on the radio so that I could create you know, a discussion on both sides. So I might take a position like civil unions, but not legalizing marriage mm -hmm. for homosexuals. Now, this would have been in the early 80s. So I don't don't pigeonhole me to yeah. any utterances <laughs> like that today. But but it was an effort to say, I'm not going to be an extremist to the religious ultra conservatives. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be as liberal as my my uh, wife uh, was. Um, and so how do I navigate that? And what I found was interesting. I mean, this is 13, 14 years ago. People hated you on both sides. Then. <laughs> I mean, you found this perfect place to have no one have your corner. I think it would have been smarter to have taken an extreme position on either side but I didn't want to be an ideologue. And, I, and I, I say that to you because I think it's easier sometimes not mm -hmm. to have to find a middle ground or to try to parse where's the truth, where's the fiction and where's my own bias. It's so much easier just to pick your team and never think again. Yeah. Yeah. I think that language, the team language, I think is really important. I, and that's where the problem is. We've made teams out of these sides and automatically that make that creates binaries, right? You're either with us or you're against us. When really for a lot of these issues, so much of it, there's a spectrum, like where on the spectrum do you fall on these positions? And if you don't fall in line with your team, we're so identity politics based right now that you are immediately isolated and, and kicked out, right? So my husband and I were literally having a conversation about this last week where you know, I got engaged on Twitter, maybe more than I should have in, a, in the back and forth, thinking that, you know, maybe civil discourse could happen here for the first time ever on Twitter. And I found, gosh, I feel like I'm isolated from, from both sides. I'm not entirely enough with this camp for them to feel like they can you know, accept me, but I'm not with this camp enough for them to accept me. And I think a lot of people are feeling lonely in that. But I think that the more we begin to talk about it, the more I think we'll find there are more of us than we think there are. And and that there's some solidarity in, in knowing that we don't all fit on the teams. And the more that we're willing to kind of call out our own teams, the teams that we might normally associate with and say, this might be a problem here. And maybe this team got it right in some ways. I think the more, um, the more civil the conversation will ultimately end up becoming. So, Sarah, speaking of Colorado Springs, uh, Dan Lundy, who I used to work with in Colorado Springs oh, is awesome. on LinkedIn Live. What a small world we have here. Yes. Uh, but he just wrote, just ordered the book. Well, we better show the cover of the book, make sure we're getting people the right <laughs> book. Don't you think? But I'll do that in a second. Just ordered the book. Interested how Sarah addresses the fact that there is truly only one true biblical truth and how to interact with those who are deceived. So now we've got this 
there's one truth here, he says. Mm -hmm. And so, and you could be deceived. And what do you do with those deceived? Aren't you obligated to speak truth to those to, for salvation purposes? Yeah. I'll, uh, I'm glad I can pop off the screen and let <laughs> you take this one. It's all yours, Sarah. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because I think you'll find people on both sides who think that they've cornered the market on biblical truth and are willing to say people on the other side are deceived. And I think that's actually what allows us to get away with a lot of bad treatment of people. Because when we think we can corner the market on God and what the Bible says on a certain, you know, any number of issues, then that allows us to get away with some really bad behavior towards other people and think that God's endorsing it because he's with us. So I, I would always be very careful anytime that we can can reduce um, a position to, well, this is very clear because the Bible says every every reading of the Bible is an interpretation of, of context, of culture. Of, there's so much that goes into it. It's never as simple as we want to make it appear. And I think a lot of what I, I try to say in the book is that anytime we land on a position um, too easily, it, it actually shuts down our critical thinking so that maybe what we need to do is lean into that conversation a little bit more. And instead of being like, this is the truth and I know it for sure, lead with a question of, can you help me understand how you landed where you landed? Maybe I, this is how I've interpreted it. This is how my experience has led me to land where I am. What have you experienced that's led you to land where you landed? And, and to really begin a back and forth that this is not about a monologue, a back and forth of monologues, but it's a dialogue. It's a taking and receiving of what you're hearing and then responding to that, not just reacting to it. All right, so let's, you have these three concepts of uh, distinction, right? Your book is all about distinction. I, it's interesting, you almost like polarize two concepts and you kind of let people see where they are and, and the importance of the nuances between them. So let's go with beliefs, convictions, and opinions. Um, I am sure that my opinions are fact, just for the record, <laughs> and uh, everyone else's opinions okay. are flawed. So uh, maybe you can take us through the beliefs, convictions, and opinions, and how to parse your thinking about the world through those lenses and what it means in terms of how you engage others. Yeah, well, I really, I wanted to come up with these three ways of, of talking about the things that we feel passionately about, because it feels right now, especially politically and religiously probably as well, that everything is the belief and everything is a hill that we're willing to die on. Well, the problem is when everything's a hill that we're willing to die on, nothing is, right? We start to sound like white noise when we're willing to engage in every single argument. And so I like to say, you don't need to attend every argument you're invited to. We really need to pick the things that are worth our energy. And so for these three topics or three kind of categories, beliefs are the things that that really make us who we are. They, they really kind of shape our identity. These are the things we're not willing to kind of compromise on, that this is these are the issues we will put our energy and our time and our money towards when it comes to defending. Um, our convictions are the things we have strong feelings about them, but we also know that other people have landed on other convictions even if we don't agree with them, we understand that people do land there and, and we appreciate that. And our opinions are things that we really could go either way on or, or even the things that we're willing to say, I actually don't know a lot about this. Like I could probably be talked into it or out of it one way or the other. And so my feeling is that we need to decide what are the conversations we're willing to engage in. Um, for some people, maybe engaging in a, a debate about our beliefs isn't helpful because the, already the emotion is so much higher because it's a belief. But maybe when it comes to talking to somebody that we don't agree with on somebody start or agree with on something, start with an opinion. Start with something that you're like, you know, I don't know a lot about this. Help me, you know, help me see how you landed here because this is something you could convince me of. And I think that 
develops um, some relational equity, the back and forth, the willingness to be humble in our approach and not to say, I've figured this all out. I've cornered the market on all the beliefs and convictions and opinions. You, I'm trying to convince you to come to my side. Wow. I just, I love this. And, you know, I, I imagine your dad has some beliefs that are different than mine, just because of what he does in the current role he plays. Yeah. He's, he was an appointee in the Trump, uh, you know, administration, as well as his appointments in Bush and, and the like. And he has pretty conservative Christian views, uh, you know, if you wanted to say that. So from a belief standpoint, if he and I got into conversation, we might have a disconnect at the belief yeah. side, but we could get started, you're saying, by saying, you know, here's my opinion on something. I'm really not sure all that. What's your opinion? How did you come to it? And we could begin to see if we can create inertia respect yeah. that would enable us to move further. Yeah, and I also, I think it's important, I talk about this in the book as well, is really look for the lowest common denominator of things that you share with somebody. That there's always gonna be something that connects us to another person, even if it's just our shared humanity that there is something that we have in common as a result of that. And so that's something that my family has had to work through because we don't see eye to eye on everything. What are the things that tie us together? And and really believing the best about that person. So for my family, my parents, um, you know, they really want to create the best possible America for their grandkids to inherit. And those are my kids. And I want my kids to inherit the best possible America. Now, we might have a different idea of what it looks like to get there, but when I can assign them the motive of they are literally doing what they think is best for this country and for my kids, I have a lot more grace and empathy towards them when I can see that's the motive they're operating out of and not just automatically assuming that they want to tank the country. Assign them the motive. I just love the phrase. You know, I, in working with leadership teams, I often talk about as part of a code of conduct between the C-suite members to assume positive intent, right? Like, but but this is beyond positive intent. Can someone like assume a communal outcome that they want to share with me? Let me find we are moving in the same direction, irrespective of our tactics, if you will. That's right. Yeah. When you, when you have that position, then you're you're more able to come up with a third option. It's not one team winning over the other team. It's okay. We want we both want this. What's the best for the sake of the country, for the good of everybody, not just one team coming out on top of the other and getting rid of the other team completely. All right. I'm going to pop up this book cover, even though every time I do it, it almost removes. you. <laughs> That's OK. <laughs> I'm not sure. Are, are you talking? Cause I, my sound cut out. Oh, no, no, it was me. I didn't. I, I, I pulled myself out of the stream instead yeah. of, yeah, just going. To like, one but now I'll hide behind your book and I'll talk. Now <laughs> you can hear me. Now you won't see either one of us. Cause I'm going to pop something up. I'm going to quote from this book. Uh, pull out the banner too, but here's what, uh, here's something uh, you wrote in the book. It said in an interview with Krista Tippett and her, uh, and her podcast on being Vatican astronomers, Guy Consumanjo and George Coyne, talk about the idea of educated ignorance. It's the notion of knowing we don't know, but continuing to educate ourselves. To live self-aware, these are your words, to live self-aware self of our finitude and limited understanding, we not only need to become healthier versions of ourselves by going after the idea of educated ignorance, we need to become safe people, others to unload their own questions in their own pursuit of educated ignorance. Oh my gosh. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to break this down as best I can, though. I must say 
its uh, load, right? I mean, it's one thing for us to stay educated ignorance, you know, get in this position of open-mindedness, constantly learning, assuming I don't have it all figured out. It's quite another thing then to sit around and let somebody else process their way through this. It's like obligated. I'm just grateful I'm open-minded and I'm sorry you're not. Like that should be good enough, don't you think? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The idea of educated ignorance, actually, Adam Grant, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he just came out with a book today called Think Again. Yes, that's exactly. Um, and I think it's it's this very idea. It's that we have made the idea of changing our minds a liability, I think, especially when it comes to politics and religion. We see it as a sign of weakness when instead it should show a willingness to continue to grow and learn. None of us hold the same ideas and beliefs about the world. You know, and on a bigger scale, like we did when we were 16 or 17 years old, we've changed in how we've seen the world and how we've seen other groups of people. And that's a really good thing. So I don't think we should shy away from it. I think that we need to lean into it and kind of get rid of the stigma of being able to say, I may have gotten this wrong, or maybe I don't know enough about this to have a, an educated opinion on it. Um, I talk about, there, there's this TED talk I've seen with Catherine Schultz, I believe her name is, where she asks the audience what it feels like um, to be wrong and people start throwing out answers like uh, it feels embarrassing or you feel shamed or humiliated and she says no that's what it feels like when you discover you're wrong F being wrong feels a lot like being right before you realize you're wrong and I just have held on to that idea so much because I think a lot of us none of us are holding on to ideas knowing they're wrong we're all holding on to our ideas believing that they are right and that we know the best so I think we've got to begin to realize there could be some ideas that we're holding on to that may not be right but we have to have the humility to say I'm willing to learn to discover I may be wrong on this and if we really are trying to become better people. That's a humility that we really need to embrace. Well, so Sarah, we did not talk about Adam Grant before we did this, <laughs> no. event, right? It's no. kind of a God thing that you yeah. mentioned Adam Grant, because I wanted you to react to something that Adam Grant writes. So yeah. here we go. Let me pop it up for a second. So if you don't know Adam Grant, he is an organizational psychologist. I consider him a colleague in that sense. Uh, sell as many books as he does. Uh, remarkable <laughs> talent. He uh, He's a professor at the Wharton School. I think he was the youngest uh, tenured professor there at age 28. He's brilliant, and this is what he wrote in his recent book, which is a uh, you know hot off the uh, mm -hmm. hot off the presses sort of bestseller called "Think Again." He wrote, "As we sit with our beliefs, they tend to become more extreme and more entrenched." I'm still struggling to accept that Pluto may not be a planet. In education, after revelations in history and re revolutions in science, it often takes years for a curriculum to be updated and textbooks to be revised. What's your thinking? Because it ties in so well to yeah. what I read in your book and thus I wanted to pull some of him to share yeah. today. Well, I, I relate to the Pluto revelation. That was shocking when you grow up in elementary school and you learn there are nine planets. Um, so I get that. But I also, I, I love how we started that. We become more entrenched in our beliefs. And I think the culture, the social media culture that we live in makes that even more of a reality because based on our timelines and the things that we click on, there are algorithms that are showing us the things that we want to be shown when it comes to the news articles that we're reading and clicking on. We can tune into a news station that will tell us exactly what we want to be told. So, and I, Adam also talks about this a little bit, that it's not just, we don't just have confirmation bias where we're 
we're looking to where we find what we expect to find, we also have like a preferential bias where we are only going to see what we want to see. And so I think that's what feeds into this kind of entrenched beliefs and more extreme when we're only surrounded by people who think like us, where we're only reading news stories that agree with what we already think we start to exist in these sort of echo chambers and that's not good for anybody. Um, on, a, on a bigger scale, when it comes to the future of the country and politics, um, that that kind of deadens our critical thinking skills because we don't know how to interact with people not like us anymore. We automatically assume that they're deranged or you know misled if they think differently than us. So I think that's a big problem. But I think just as individuals, it's really harmful as well. We don't want to become um, this kind of monolith that, that buys into everybody on this particular side or team only thinking this one particular way. We've got to so, ourselves. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on CNN and I spent a, a lot of time on uh, on Fox during the, the, and if anything, as much as that you try then not to be isolated in your preferential bias, it's a little maddening. It's at some point you go, now, what is true? I mean, what really is true? It, it's almost, it left me more with futility than anything else. And then I'll add to that, that I still have extended family members who are convinced that the coronavirus is a hoax, who are convinced. And so if you were to try to have a civil dialogue with them and say, well, you're right, what's the harm in, you know, wearing a mask? I mean, what, and then it goes into these sort of circular discussions of human freedom and right. efforts to intrude upon them as individuals and government control. And it, 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 there's a point where you just go, okay, you know, if I were triaging this patient clinically and I saw them going down the river, I would probably let them just go and go because there's nothing about engaging them. Yeah. And I know you're big into engagement, yeah. but there's nothing about engaging them that's gonna be productive. Whereas some other body swimming down the river, I might be able to pull out and right. resuscitate to some reasonable position. But but that assumes again that I'm right. Like yeah. maybe this is a hoax. Maybe the whole thing <laughs> is a hoax, right? Well, I do, I, I think one of the things I, I try to spend a little bit of time on the book talking about is the difference between a different idea and a harmful idea that I'm really trying to promote the fact that not every different idea is harmful, that just because you think differently than me doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. But at the same time, there are harmful ideas. There are ideas that we are not going to give airtime to to promote because they are hurting other people. You know, at the, at the very baseline, if someone can't respect the humanity and dignity in another human being, that's not saying, oh, that's just a different way of seeing the world. Like that's harmful to people. So I think we need to distinguish what's harmful and what's different and realizing that there's some nuance there and trying to figure out which is which. But I think the other thing that's important um, I follow an organization called Preemptive Love and their founder, Jeremy Courtney said this, and I haven't been able to shake it every, every, ever since. He said, we wanna be peacemakers, but really we can only be responsible for being peace seekers, right? To make peace, it requires two people willing to make peace together. So if you're talking with someone who has no interest in changing their mind and no openness to it, you can't be responsible for, for convincing them to think differently or to engage in this conversation, but you can seek 
piece with them. You can extend a bid for conversation. And I would just say, if you if they're not willing to engage, to not shut down the relationship forever. Maybe this isn't the right time. No one's going to make a 180 degree change in mind, opinion, whatever automatically right away in one giant leap. Usually it's increments, it's small changes, it's exposure to little things at, at a time that will eventually lead to a bigger change. So I would just say, keep that relationship open, make the bids for peace, seek the peace, but it doesn't necessarily mean that ever, every conversation is gonna end in a hug and we're all on the same page and it's great. So my parents raised me to never talk about religion Never talk about race and never talk about politics. And then I went on to be a talk show host. So I really <laughs> I let them down immeasurably. But but I think what, what I, and even when I did, and then years later, and there's things on Wikipedia that people have said that I said that I know I couldn't have possibly said because I never even remotely felt them. What you start to realize is anytime you take a chance to do anything other than placate people uh, or avoid them, yeah. You do run the risk of not being able to make peace. That's right. Uh, you know, you may be able to facilitate some peace over time, but you just can't. I don't know. There's something that I've learned in, in this life that the placating isn't all that good for yourself either. I mean, like denying your own truth or your own beliefs and not being able to converse because you're so concerned about not upsetting someone. That doesn't work either. Right. Yeah, and I think that comes from, you know, your parents telling you don't talk about these things because it tends to lead to conflict. A conflict doesn't feel good. So we, I think we've started to think that just because it doesn't feel good means it can't be good or conflict is bad. Conflict is not bad. Conflict only becomes bad when we treat the person holding the position as a bad person or, or we're distancing ourselves from the human behind holding a particular position. So I don't, the conflict is not the problem. It's the way that we're treating the conflict. And in a lot of ways, it's, we need that conflict to get us to the best possible scenario, best possible situation when it comes to our country, right? If we are only have Republicans in charge, there are things that would be blind spots to that party that Democrats see better than Republicans do. And vice versa, Democrats cannot be the only ones making decisions because there are blind spots that they have as well. So I think we need to lean into the tension. The tension is not bad. It's going to help us sharpen our critical thinking skills. It's going to point out blind spots that we may be missing um, when we're only surrounded by people like us, but instead to do it in a way that's focused on the task that's the problem and not the person who ha happens to hold a differing position. I, I was, uh, I'm not on the screen, but I, I'll pop up your book because I, I can't do all the same things all at the same time. So uh, let me make sure that I get your book up here because it's really important to me that people see this book. I mean, you're hearing what I was so smitten by intellectually, this idea that somehow or another, we as human beings can do better, that we don't need to be in this place where we're told what to think on social media platforms or we only consume things. You know, I've likened it to being obese. You know, we could probably trace for some people, obviously there's biological reasons for some, but for, for some of us, uh, our weight is correlated by what we consume, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it, as much as I hate to admit it, uh, and the discipline, you know, I communicate in terms of exercise or other disciplines. Um, and here we are often consuming information that we know is salacious and clickbait, right? And we do it and we wonder why we feel bloated in a, a mindset that doesn't really promote social well-being. Right. A little about that discipline of how do I balance my consumption of all this stuff? Yeah. 
I, I heard somebody say, this was months ago, they said that uh, watching a news channel that doesn't cater to their political views is a spiritual discipline. And I loved that image, but I think it is a discipline. I think that continuing to expose ourselves to people and to ideas that are different than ours is not something we're gonna gravitate towards on our own, but it's something we need to do because as you said, the feeling we get when we're just exposed to things that we know are not necessarily true, or we know we're just kind of stoking these emotional you know, fires inside of us, we've got to be aware of that and live knowing that our attention is a commodity. So that the things that are showing up on our social media feeds or the, the clickbait when it comes to different articles and news sources, that those are there to get us to click, to get us riled up because in our anger, they will keep our attention longer than something that makes us feel good or tells us just the straight facts. So I think that's important to know that we are, our attention is being fought for and, and the things that are winning our attention are the things that are getting us the most fired up and, and can creating this kind of combative emotion. So living aware of that's important. Being aware of the social media platforms that cause you to feel that. I know that when I get on Twitter, I probably am not going to be feeling great when I get off five minutes later. So I need to know that there's a time to look at it. And 10 minutes before I go to bed is probably not the time because it'll get me riled up and fired up and it's not going to be good. So just being aware of how all these things are contributing to our emotional well-being and knowing that if we are ingesting this stuff that's kind of making us feel bad, that's going to is that's going to help us or it's going to hurt us as we're engaging with other people on the other side, right? So that what we're putting into us is going to come out in the way that we're engaging with people and that we need to be aware of that. So let me let me drive people to sarahbanderson.com. Uh, now, obviously, you can get this book on Amazon, so that's an option. You can go to her website, and I think what you'll get in the website, besides the book too, I mean, that's available. You'll also get the opportunity to see some of her other writings, uh, particularly around faith and family, which is, I think, the centerpiece of what you do every day. Um, so uh, it's very helpful if, if you're interested in looking at kind of how to help your kids, uh, you know, develop a healthy faith perspective and an open mind to those who differ from them. So I think it's a really outstanding site. So you want to go there. Uh, I'll pop the book up over my head again, because I think that works <laughs> out. That works out probably best of all. It, it's the best of everything, really. It doesn't, it doesn't crowd you. It saves the viewer for me. It's a fabulous solution. The space between us, how Jesus teaches us to live together. When politics and religion pull us apart, she is Sarah B. Anderson. So, um, you know, the the perfunctory question you have to ask people uh, is, A, uh, what are you doing these days? What's next? Like, you know, you just finish a book and then people are going like, what's next on the hit parade for you? Like recovering, promoting, you know, um, you know, I have to have a next. But how about you? What's, uh, what do you see this book doing in terms of your journey to help people have more civility? Yeah, I don't know that I have a next in mind. I've heard people say that asking someone after they wrote a book what's next is like asking a woman who just had a baby, you know, when are you having the next kid? So I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I, yeah, I'm not sure what, what exactly comes next. My goal in doing this book was I really wanted to just equip families first and foremost, but friends as well, and just how to navigate these differences and to not feel like it was too late, like that the, these differences we shared with one another were going to be deal breakers in our relationship. And so the feedback I've gotten from families, um, specifically intergenerational, so a lot of parents and adult kids reading this book together and being able to have conversations around topics that um, they hadn't been able to have conversations around, that is such a win for me. I 
I get the most satisfaction knowing that, you know, obviously I love being able to sell books and, and doing, having conversations like this are great. But when I get texts from people saying, oh my gosh, we had a conversation at our house about this that we had never been able to breach before. And, and knowing that these principles are actually working, not just in my family, but in other people's families helps so much. So I, if there's something else that I feel like um, I had that much emotion around that I can write about, I would love to do it. But right now I just love seeing this kind of grassroots movement around these principles um, come into play so that we don't have to rely on our leaders to lead out on this anymore, that we can start doing this within our homes, within our neighborhoods, and starting to watch um, relationships be healed in a way that maybe we hadn't seen before. All right, Eldon, tell people, I really want you to do this on the show. Like, it's just, <laughs> that's kind of weird. That's like when I was a kid, my mom would say, you know, Joey accordion for the person who just came over. <laughs> Um, which kind of gives you a sense of what my household was like. That was a pretty <laughs> exciting thing. But um, for you, I needed you to do this. It wasn't like, I, I mean, I want you to do it, but I need to hear this. So in 2016, it was Thanksgiving and you were heading home and there had been an election and uh, not everyone was completely in agreement about the greatness of that election. And going home, there was going to be a little bit of disagreement uh, manifest. And so you were trying to get ready for what were you going to talk about? Who was going to do the prayer? How are you going to deal with the, you know, the division in your household? And you wrote your liturgy. Can you take it from there? Share your liturgy. We're going to yeah. close on that. And then I'm going to do a quick little lightning round and make sure people know how to get your book. Okay. So here is your liturgy. Give it again in context because I'm, I'm sure yeah. I did it a disservice. Yeah, you nailed it. No, there is an election. You know, Thanksgiving always follows the election. So that can be really tense for a lot of families. Um, and, and I was feeling it in my family. And so I just kind of wrote this prayer for myself and shared it with my husband. And um, my dad tends to ask my husband to do a Thanksgiving prayer because he's a pastor. So he gets that he gets that responsibility every year. And my husband said, I think I should read this liturgy. And so we all um, stood in the kitchen together and um, read it together. And it was a really powerful experience. It really centered us on the things that still really mattered and that we shared between each other uh, among us, but also um, challenged us to see beyond the differences that we, that we had. So this is called a liturgy for the space between us. For family near and peaceable, Lord, we give thanks. For family far and conflicted, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones easy to love, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones we fight to love, Lord, we give thanks. For people who see as we see, Lord, we give thanks. For people we don't understand, Lord, we give thanks. For people who don't understand us, Lord, we give thanks. For easy conversation and expressed affection, Lord, we give thanks. For gentle discord within our discourse, Lord, we give thanks. For unity, not sameness, Lord, we give thanks. For charity in all things, Lord, we give thanks. For a world that reflects your goodness, Lord, we give thanks. For humankind that bears your image, Lord, we give thanks. For a day when we'll delight in our differences and not just tolerate them. For a gathering of every tribe and every tongue. For a table and a feast today anticipating the one we'll enjoy with you someday. Lord, we give thanks. Amen. Ah, for Sarah B. Anderson, we give thanks. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for that and for the book. Um, you know, look, 
I put people on this show because I find incredible value in what they have to say. And I hope that some of you will find that kind of value and uh, you'll pick up a book like The Space Between Us. And I I think this is one that it's not just an option, you know, whether it's faith based or political based or just you have people who think so vastly different. Uh, this is probably an opportunity for us to try to find a way to not just build walls, but to build some bridges between one another. So with that, I thank you. So, all right, here's the lightning round. You ready? I'm ready. Real quick answers. You don't, not, don't overthink anything. Okay. All right. So there are some really pretty remarkable, oh, let me get myself out of here. There are some really remarkable men in this picture. I think yes. they happen to have names like Rodney, Asher, and Pace. This is true. What, what, would you, what do you think when you see this picture? Um, contentment, just the best. I'm just happy with those boys in my life. They're the best. All right. Well, that's a quick answer. You, you did the quick answer thing really, really well. All right. <laughs> let me, uh, what does one do with a college major in Christian thought? Oh, my dad asked the same question. <laughs> <laughs> he also wondered. Um, I work, I work for a curriculum writing company that writes curriculum for churches. So I think Christian thoughts and then I write them down and people buy them. <laughs> wow. Perfect. I like it. Uh, so because he gets all of the ink, it seems Carol Hoke. Mm hmm. Okay. That's all I'm saying. It's Carol okay. Hope. No, right. You have to react. Uh, this, the way this goes, I say something, you react. Carol okay. Hope. Um, I would say she is the unifier. She's the one that brings us all together. She makes the family happen. She makes the, ha the gatherings happen. She makes the family vacations happen. She makes the adult dinners out happen. She makes sure we're getting our Christmas pictures together. She makes it all happen. All right, so so it's not inside baseball, and you don't know what the heck's going on. Carol Hope is her mom, yes, the wife of Gary okay. Bauer. Rodney from earlier was her husband. Asher and Pace were kids. I just don't. I I don't want to get a bunch of hate mail for a program <laughs> that's supposed to bring people together. Well, who are you talking about, Joseph? All right, um, Andy Stanley. This one we may not have to describe, but maybe we do. Andy Stanley. Oh goodness. Um... Well, he, in a way, he was responsible for me meeting my husband. I, I met him at a uh, ranch that I was working at in Wyoming. He and his family came out, and I didn't have anything to do with my Christian thought major, because so I was working at a ranch, and he said, hey, I have a church in Atlanta. Do you want to you know, put in your resume, see if we can find a place for you down there? I did, and so I am super grateful. If I had to come up with one word, I would say very grateful for um, the opportunity he gave me as a young 20-something-year-old to work at his church that led me to meet my husband, and then the opportunity earlier this year or the end of last year to share about my book on um, the stage at North Point. All right, last question. Mountains versus Georgia versus Washington, D.C. Oh, Georgia mountains for sure. Oh, so you blend them together. You're yeah, not well, taking I, where you live in Georgia. You're going up. You're going up in Georgia. I, I, I would say, well, if I had a real, I would go West. I would okay. go to Georgia and do mountains. Um, I love going back to visit DC, but you have to have a special personality to stay there and thrive there. And I did not have that. Everybody else in my family has it. They love it. They feed off of that energy. Um, I would. I like the quiet of the mountains and uh, some distance between the nation's capital and myself. All right. All right. You have everything you need to see on the screen there. I got Sarah Bear, Sarah B. Anderson everywhere. Uh, Sarah <laughs> B. Anderson. She has the space between us. The book. 
I hope uh, you'll give it the time of day. Uh, and I thank you so much for uh, taking the time with me today. So with that, let me uh, kind of get the rest of you up to speed on what we're doing in the very, very near future. Um, next week, my buddy, Brad Montgomery. Brad is actually a magician by training, but an incredible speaker. He's one of those guys who goes on stage and he, he'll he take something like a, like a uh, uh, yeah, easy for me to say, what are the, Sarah, I need you, don't go anywhere. Sarah, what are those things that, uh, dandelion, Never mind. I, I almost asked her, but I figured it out myself. He'll take a dandelion, you know, when it, when it goes to, to sprout and he'll blow it into the air and he'll say, you know, you thought that was magic, he'll do some giant magic trick, right? And then he'll do that and he goes, you know what's really magic is when, when I blow this and my kid is totally mesmerized by, the, by what happens in the moment, right? So Brad Montgomery, brilliant magician who leverages that skill to help us see the natural occurring magic in the moments of our lives. Um, and then we've got the lady who's responsible for my branding and sh she's written books on corporate branding, but personal branding as well. Uh, Susan Tulian joins us. Then I got an indulgence. I hate to say this to so Tracy Grammer, kind of a folk singer, gonna talk to us about creativity. Uh, how do you not censor the creative thoughts in your brain? And really let them have expression. And to take it a little farther, a couple of weeks later, uh, Eric Ferrone, who used to teach me improvisational comedy, uh, part of something called Bovine Metropolis in Denver, Colorado. He is uh, an improv teacher, studied with Glenn Close and all the wonderful people um, at Second City. So just a fabulous guy, gonna talk about how do we not only be creative, but how do we give permission to be spontaneous and spontaneous in ways that help build one another. So that's it. Uh, those are the things coming up. If you show, please share it with somebody. What we do, and just let us know, because as you share it, we look for the people who share it, and then we send a copy of my new book uh, to folks who are so inclined to do that. So Stronger Through Adversity will send your way. Uh, among some of the folks who do that, we select randomly. But I really love it if you would like this. And uh, if you like the book, by the way, we always appreciate you going on Amazon and giving a review. That's very helpful. But beyond that, if you share this particular program, Sanderson.com, then you will um, be in the running for one of my books. Um, You'd be better off if you had one of hers, but hey, so goes it. All right, everyone, have a great day. Thank you so much. I'm honored to have been a part of this time with you.